Blog Talk Radio. This is Gigabit Man. Public, private, and non-profit organizations tackle important issues in getting broadband everywhere it needs to be. Um, today is, uh, number one, besides being the last show of the year, uh, I'm going to take a look at one particular community that I have heard about since uh, the beginning of my time uh, being involved with community broadband back in '05, And uh, at that time, uh, Seattle, I think, was one of the few places, especially the, the, I think the few uh, larger cities that were having serious discussions about having a fiber network throughout the city. And it's been a discussion, it's been in the news off and on, and, and at one point it looked like it was, be but just a, a a dream, and then all of a sudden we get the announcement that um, Seattle has gone into a partnership with uh, Gigabit Squared to, in essence, create some pilot projects exploring uh, Gigabit uh, capabilities. And uh, and I am assuming, and uh, we will assume no longer because we'll actually ask the question, that uh, this will grow into a much uh, broader. Uh, broadband uh, endeavor. So to, today, uh, our guests, we have two guests. Um, there we have uh, Aaron DeVoto, who is acting CTO for the City of Seattle, and also Ed Luzowska, who is um, a Bill and Melinda Gates Chair at the Computer Science and Engineering uh, Department at the University of Washington. And the university is a key uh, player, partner in this uh, adventure as well as Gigabit Squared. And so uh, both of you, Aaron and Ed, thank you, and welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you. So let's talk about what's the deal. Uh, what, what exactly is the partnership? And then we'll branch off and talk a little bit about uh, the history, how you guys, you know, how the city got to this point, and then what it means for uh, for the city. So, so Aaron, we'll start with you and then... Ed, you can describe your role and then and kind of get us to, you know, what, what exactly has been announced here. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, it's a little complicated, and so bear with me a little bit. Um, uh, the University of Washington and City of Seattle have jointly agreed to become part of the GIGU um, consortium that consists of 37 cities and universities across the United States who are interested in promoting fiber to the home deployments. Um, as part of that, uh, Gigabit Squared responded to GigU's um, RFP and the University and City of Seattle um, met with Gigabit Squared and started conversations uh, middle of last year about how we could partner together to move something forward. In the meantime, Gigabit Squared put out an RFP that the city and the university responded to. And uh, in September, late September, October of this year, Gigabit Squared came to us and said they wanted to partner with the two of us to look at building a demonstration project within the city of Seattle. So the particulars of the project are that uh, the city has had legislation passed uh, last summer that allows us to lease our excess fiber and uh, across the city, and that has um, allowed us to begin conversations with people like Gigabit Squared and other firms. Uh, Gigabit Squared came to us and said, uh, you know what would you propose and and here are some criteria and so the university and the city came back to gigabit squared and said here's you know here's some ideas for you so the proposal and what gigabit squared intends to do is to look at uh targeted areas in the city of Seattle where uh the criteria is that there's uh density there's um fiber in the air and uh, they want to serve um, communities that do not have choices for Internet service, and they propose to um, set up um, several different services 
um, as they go forward in the next 24 months. But their goal is to uh, provide fiber to the home to uh, over 100,000 population, and uh, that equates to about 50,000 households within the city of Seattle. If there's enough demand, they would like to expand that um, everywhere in Seattle. Talk a little bit about your role. If I ask the obvious question, what is a chair? Um, you know, from in reference to the to the foundation, and then uh, what was your uh, you know, role in the in, in the process, getting us to this point? Well, let me talk about the university's role rather than uh, or in addition to my personal role. I think the University of Washington has been. Uh, a partner with the city of Seattle going back literally decades in telecommunications. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, as an example, uh, very early on, there was a fiber-sharing agreement and also a, uh, a pole ordinance. And I'll get the legal details totally wrong, but to first approximation, the fiber-sharing agreement allowed the city and the county and the university to share fiber assets where appropriate. And the pole ordinance... Uh, allowed uh, organizations, governmental organizations, such as the university, which is a public university, and the city to have fiber pulled at marginal cost when telecommunications companies were up the poles anywhere, is the way, anyway, is the way to think about it, okay? And uh, the uh, result of that has been a, a, a really robust fiber infrastructure that the city and the university and the county have access to, and these assets are really important. They're important to the University of Washington because while we have a campus, close to half of our buildings aren't on the campus, and some of them are uh, 100 miles away. And uh, having uh, reliable, high-performance, cost-effective uh, access to them is uh, is critically important. So this, this partnership really goes back a, a very long way. At the same time, we could talk more about this later, but UW's been involved in all of the phases of bringing advanced research and education broadband to the Pacific Northwest. That dates back to bringing ARPANET here in 1980. I arrived in 1977, and in 1980, we wrote a major federal uh, research grant that brought ARPANET, the precursor of the Internet, here at a time when there were fewer than 200 computers on the global communication network. There, of course, are more than a billion today. Uh, So this notion of uh, universities being sort of the anchor tenants for advanced broadband and working with their cities and their municipalities to drive it out goes back a really long way. And this is just a, uh, a successor to that. We in the city uh, had been working for a long time with uh, Blair Levin, uh, who has been uh, originally wrote the FCC broadband plan and now has been pushing it forward as a, uh, as a private effort. And, uh, you know, so the, the role here was uh, helping to work as a partner and bring the partners together to try and deploy more advanced broadband in the city of Seattle. We're, we're stuck in this catch-22, as I always describe it, in which uh, our nation really doesn't have advanced broadband. Again, we can say more about the statistics about that in a second. And the result of that is we don't have uh, advanced applications, and the result of that is we don't have customers for uh, advanced broadband, and that's then used as an excuse for not deploying uh, broadband. But but constantly pushing forward from you know 56k modems to the sort of internet access we have today at tens of megabits to the future. This is essential to the economic vitality of uh, of the city of Seattle and King County and the state of Washington and the whole nation. And the tragedy is that. Our nation invented all of this stuff, and we are miles away today from being the world leader. We've been run over by all sorts of other nations, and we've got to correct that. And this is a, a step in that direction to sort of break out of this circular catch-22 in which everybody has an excuse for not doing what, as a region and a nation, we need to do. Hmm. Okay. Now, the takeaway from what you two have just described, there seems to be two. One is... Um, there's great value in a university-city partnership relationship because a lot of your ability to move forward the way you're moving forward now is possible because of that relationship between the university and the city. 
the second takeaway is that um, cities need to look at, you know, what are their existing resources because, again, it sounds like uh, there are resources already in place. The city has dark fiber. The university has assets and so forth. And in our larger cities in particular, I sort of get the sense that there are uh, there are probably some some of the foundation for a you know better, faster broadband if someone would sort of stop and take an inventory of their um, of their assets. Are those two fairly valid uh, takeaway points? Well, I would I would add that yes, they are very valid takeaway points. I think that um, what makes Seattle and the University of Washington a little bit more unique than some other larger cities is that we have invested in fiber since 1996, and there are 17 partners in that partnership along with the university. And so we do have some assets available that other cities may not may not have. Um, we also have the University of Washington, and Ed can speak to this a lot better than I can, but the University of Washington is known worldwide as uh, a health education institution and uh, their medical system and medical teaching uh, facilities are, I think, some of the best in the world. And, and one of the things that, as Ed mentioned, this um, project will rely on is the ability to innovate applications along with just delivering the infrastructure. And so that's why the partnership with the University of Washington is so critical because um, as we look forward, we don't even know how big this can be until we actually get some of it implemented. Mm -hmm. Did I did I characterize that correct, Ed? Absolutely, and and I, I just want to indicate that this is the history of computing and communications, right? And that is that we deploy things not necessarily knowing what their most interesting use is going to be, right? right. So uh, ARPANET and the Internet was so that I could log on to an expensive computer somewhere else, right? N nobody imagine that I would be doing all of my Christmas shopping and that we would have uh, 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 educational applications in which single courses are enrolling 150,000 students from around the world. Right? So uh, n no one imagined that this is how we would get our news and our government services. Uh, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the point. Right? So the, the, the apps that have been created are far more interesting and far more powerful and reach far more people than what was envisioned when we started. Um, you know, my own experience when I was an undergraduate, God help me, 40 years ago, uh, the faculty member for whom I was working was m making profligate use of computing resources. We, we were essentially using a building-sized university computing center as a personal computer between midnight and 6 a.m. And okay. what we were inventing was what you think of today as what you see is what you get hypertext editing sort of microsoft okay. word plus the web right and uh okay. and uh and you know it's very hard to imagine how that would have spread once it became cost effective so i think we have to in some sense t take these big steps that break us out of the situations in which we find ourselves and get us to the next level well, and Ed and I are both very fortunate in some ways because both uh, the university president, Michael Young, and the mayor of the city of Seattle, Michael McGinn, are, are very willing to take this step. And um, it is, it's complicated to explain what all this can mean, and we don't even know mm -hmm. what all <laughs> it can mean, But um, mm -hmm. as Ed is talking about. But I think that um, uh, being brave is is part of part of this where um we know this is where we need to go and and we're going to try it. Mm -hmm. Now with the um the, the the nature of the project itself, you know, there are 12 neighborhoods involved. Are these in fact multiple pilots as opposed to say one sort of single pilot, but they're going to try different things in each of those neighborhoods? Is that a correct characterization? 
Well, I don't think uh, this has totally been um, totally been settled yet. But uh, what what Gigabit Squared asked everybody to do when we responded to their request is is to let them know how we think they could implement um, the numbers of uh, connections based on. Uh, as I mentioned, density and, and low-cost deployment. So we took a stab at it um, and suggested 12 targeted neighborhoods based on density and, and where they are and the ability to access fiber on poles, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when Gigabit Squared starts their um, engineering here in January, they will take a look at that, and things could change. But um, okay. basically... Uh, there were criteria that had been set by Gigabit Squared that we tried to meet in our proposal, and it's one of the reasons we were selected. So, um, but once they get their engineering underway, things could change. Right. I do want to indicate that these are uh, heterogeneous areas and neighborhoods of the city. So, uh, I would expect that the the nature of use and the nature of the applications will be considerably different. Uh, depending on the particular neighborhood. That doesn't make them uh, different trials or different experiments, but it does say that we've got different people and different businesses in these 12 different areas of the city. So it's, uh, it's a great cross-section. It's, it's by no means uh, entirely people who can uh, afford to pay lots of money for high-access broadband. It's, it's very heterogeneous. Yes. Right. And, and, and the benefit of that being that you will get to see different types of uh, potential applications or actual applications that, that evolve from, uh, from all of this, which is going to be a, uh, a good thing. Will there be a, um, a mix of um, businesses in those neighborhoods as well that will be you know, part of this exercise? Yes, there will. And and in addition to that, what Gigabit Squared is proposing to do is to also uh, set up um, very high-speed Wi-Fi clouds, if you will, um, by accessing 38 uh, publicly owned buildings across the city. And that will allow them at the same time that they are um, implementing fiber to the home, that will also allow them to set up point-to-point -point networks that um, would be accessible to businesses and multifamily dwellings. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, another asset that the city and the university have. We've got real estate, and we can make that available for, uh, for Wi-Fi points of presence, just like there is fiber that can be leased. Mm -hmm. It's important to emphasize that there are, while there are city assets being provided here, there are not city funds being expended, and, uh, and the fiber, as I understand, Aaron, will be, uh, will be leased. But the important yes. thing is that we view this not as an opportunity to make scads of money by holding up the telecom company, but rather as an opportunity to drive economic development and drive the capability of our citizens and businesses, which will pay back in the long term. So mm -hmm. I think it, it really is a, a long-term view here in uh, which uh, the, the city and the university are making assets available at, uh, I'm going to say at cost or something like that, but, but the goal mm -hmm. is not to make a bunch of money. The goal is to position us for the future, which is where we need to be. Mm -hmm. And this brings up a question uh, folks in Seattle, the uh, a column that I wrote, which is, um, you know, is the the city, in this case, university, going to own the business of broadband? And what I mean by that is, not that the city and the university own the the infrastructure, owns a sales process, but they own the process by which the technology is harnessed and used for. Um, the good of the various parts of the community. You know, you have digital inclusion issues, you have economic development issues, and so forth. And and the purpose behind the question is that, in, from my opinion, is that uh, even when someone else physically, monetarily owns the infrastructure, um, the city has to step up, the community has to step up to actually get the job done of making 
different changes and enhancements that are that are, that broadband are expected to deliver. Um, how how would you guys address that question? Take it do away, you want Aaron. First, Ed, or do you want no, me to go, go ahead, please? <laughs> okay. So uh, I think our role here at the city is a facilitator role, and um, it, you know we we are very um, careful not to say to anybody. And there are other firms that we are also talking to as well. We've had a lot of interest since we passed our ordinance that allows us to lease our excess fiber, um, and we're very careful to be clear about where we want to go, but we don't want to um, be in the business of telling the business how to run their business. So by that I mean we know eventually we want fiber to every home and business here in Seattle. We know that we want an open architecture. We know that we want low-cost Internet services, and we know that we want to uh, create an, an innovative test bed, if you will, so that um, applications we don't even know about can be used for healthcare and education. So, um, w you know, we're very open-minded on this, and um, we're not, as Ed mentioned, we're not putting uh, our money in this, but we are in a facilitator role. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, Ed, how do you how do you view the, the the idea of you know that the the community needs to, in essence, drive the you know the business of what broadband achieves for their community well it 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 seems exactly right again we we don't know what the interesting applications are going to be we don't know what the demands are going to be we do know that uh that this needs ultimately to be a sustainable business in which people get the services they need at a price they can afford and the organizations that provide that are making money and i think the uh the, the belief here is that uh, with uh, with the sort of uh, coordination and facilitation that Aaron talked about, we can push things to a new level, all right? That is, uh, mm -hmm. we can push it to a level where uh, greater bandwidth is uh, available in more places for a more reasonable cost, and it will be sustainable at that new state. So mm -hmm. the, the goal here is to uh, in inject some coordinated effort and facilitation and get us to a new place that is also sustainable. But ultimately, people are going to have to be paying for this service, and it's got to be the service that they need and want. And, and uh, again, the, my, my belief based on decades of watching technology, you know, you think about what you're doing today with technology that you weren't doing 10 years ago, you know, digital photography, digital music, searching, uh, you know, all of this stuff is totally different than it was uh, a dozen years ago, and uh, and we're trying to move to another new plane in the city of Seattle. Mm -hmm. So, so how have been the initial reviews from the from the public? And because I, I sense that there was, in know uh, what would have been the summer, uh, there was some gnashing of teeth in certain sectors where people felt like, well, the city is abandoning its broadband vision. And then here you come back and zap, you know, here we have the, the, this, this partnership and, you know, and then there's now a clear, you know, things are clearly moving forward and you have a plan. But, but how, so how has the, the public reaction been? Has there been a turnaround from the summer? Are people, like, getting on board rapidly? Are they as excited as they are in Kansas City? Well, you thank thought? you for bringing that Thank you for bringing that up, Craig, because actually uh, some of the press that we got in the summer was was frankly not accurate, and we have never uh, given up on broadband. We did have a pilot, uh, some locations where we had piloted, uh, piloted Wi-Fi, and um, in some city parks and in a couple other locations, and uh, we got to a point where we needed to decide whether to reinvest in new equipment or not and decided that that was not really something um, that we should do, that we should focus back on fiber to the home and businesses. So um, we've never given up on broadband. Um, mm -hmm. I've been with the city in, in the Department of IT since 2007, and when I came on board, 
we have been working on this since the early 2000s. So um, we've never given up, and uh, you know we continue to not give up. But um, it, it isn't easy to do, and and I think that um, you know if it was, everybody would be doing it. So uh, you know we're we're moving in a way that we think may facilitate um, the private sector being attracted to our city. And uh, one of the things about Gigabit Squared is they understand the power of needing to create powerful applications that will then drive um, increased use of gigabit speeds. Because, um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, gee, my Internet's fine. Um, we have a lot of people in Seattle that actually don't say that. But um, a lot of people don't know what they would do with a gigabit speed up and down. And uh, that's what Ed's talking about in terms of, in the past, we didn't know what we would be doing with the Internet and how it would change our lives. But we know that other countries are there, and we know that they're taking advantage of it. Um, we know that there's a role, I believe, for um, fiber installations to play a big role in how healthcare services are delivered in the future. And um, so... Uh, we're very optimistic that uh, this is a game changer for the city of Seattle. If um, Gigabit Squared has to go out and raise capital, they have to, um, you know, do a lot of engineering. But um, you know, we're so we're there, willing to facilitate all of this. There, there are two extremes of how to do this, and I, I think what we've arrived at is a reasonable middle ground. One extreme is uh, the city builds and uh, owns the infrastructure. Uh, there's or the an even better the university could, right, Ed? Or the university could, yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, there's right. there's even a, a better extreme, which is Santa Claus does it. That's that's what Kansas City <laughs> has. Okay. And unfortunately, Santa Claus is only making one stop. Okay. At the other extreme, you can rely 100% on the private sector, and I think honestly, in this nation, that has not worked. Uh, and the the middle ground is a partnership in which uh, everybody provides certain assets, and you try and do it together. And that's, that's what uh, uh, the mayor and, and uh, Aaron and her folks have led us in doing here. It's really, I think, quite remarkable, and it has lots of potential. I, I do want to emphasize, and again, your listeners are probably fully aware of this, where, where the U.S. stands in uh, broadband. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Seattle is not much better and not much worse than the rest of the nation, uh, you know, again, we we did invent this stuff. If you scroll back, the ARPANET and its transition to the internet and the commercialization of the internet is just one of the great successes of uh, government and uh, academia and the private sector working together to change the world. But uh, mm -hmm. these days, uh, I mean, here's just one statistic. If you look at the 34 OECD nations, these are the sort of economically vibrant nations in the world. We rank fifth from last. 29th in the average advertised broadband download speed, and that is a it's a fact we're a factor of six slower than the top nations. Right. So that's just one statistic. I could give you another half dozen, but uh, mm -hmm. other nations are are way ahead of the United States today. And uh, so the uh, issue here is not Seattle that's trying to catch up with the. Sorry? With the rest of the world. I was going to say that I think a lot of folks are definitely aware of that and, and can see why, you know, Seattle's efforts along with places like Kansas City and Chattanooga are important because it is an effort to close that gap, both the, the cost and the actual technology cap, uh, capability, capacity um, as well. And I think they see, you know, they see that in your actions and they see the need of it based on, you know, I think a lot of people have become aware of our standing. They may not understand exactly what it means, but I think they truly understand that there is a gap and we're on the wrong side of it. And, and I, I don't think that'll be a, an issue for people's understanding. Now, I do have uh, a couple of questions, like my Twitter site and the chat room are kind of coming alive here. I'm going to give you the, the Twitter question first, and I'm going to go to the to the chat room. So, um, one of my uh, followers asked, do uh, uh, who's going to play the IFP service role in in this project? 
and our ISPs invited uh, to compete. And I think, uh, Aaron, you have you've alluded to the fact that this is you know you are asking for other partners, but on the on the front end, who's actually the ISP in this in this scenario or in this phase one? Well, phase one is Gigabit Squared. How they uh, they have agreed that they will let ISP other ISP providers um, come to the table and and use their network. So um, I don't think they've settled on one particular ISP at this point, mm-hmm. but uh, they are um, they are they have agreed that they will build an open architecture that will allow other ISPs to provide service. Okay. So they, they are driving that uh, open that openness, if you will, and then, then having a competitive environment, uh, which has been, I think, their – no, not I think. They were on the show a few months ago, and that is indeed their mission, uh, is to obviously be the private sector to bring that expertise, but then to also make sure that it's a competitive environment so we don't end up in the same – you know, rat holes that kind of up in, in the past, not having uh, enough competition. Question um, right. on the uh, on the chat room side. Let's see. Um, are there any just talking about um, nationally distributed software development projects? And uh, I'm guessing what we're talking about is. Uh, I, I think there's been a drive to have software be strictly a digital process. I mean, you know, you don't really go to the store much for certain types of software and that this will only increase as gigabit networks come into play. Uh, has anyone talked about that? This is not something we've focused on in the context of this initiative, but I, I, the way I would think about this is that the uh, availability of broadband and has created the opportunity for all sorts of companies to uh, specialize and partner, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so that means companies have partners all over the nation and all over the world, and an individual company specializes in what it's good at and uh, outsources the rest. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that can be uh, a, a university outsourcing to someone else to print its checks and handle its payroll, for example, something mm-hmm. we used to do ourselves. And it's, it's broadband. That's an example of something that broadband makes possible. Now, there are all kinds of new models of software development that are highly distributed, and you see companies that have private networks with uh, R&D facilities all over the world uh, working together uh, moving forward 7 by 24. And you can imagine that that's an example of something that's going to become much more common once we have uh, better access to uh, to this kind of broadband. Aaron has focused on uh, health care. I've mentioned uh, education, uh, home energy monitoring, and the smart grid is another example of, of, uh, uh, of this sort of distributed capability that's going to become really widespread once everybody has access to the bandwidth needed to do it. Uh, live at home applications. You know, suppose uh, uh, everybody had uh, continuous, essentially 3D virtual reality style communication with their loved ones wherever they happen to be. There's nothing technologically infeasible about that. We just don't have the infrastructure to support it. So I think that distributed software development teams, if that's what the question was about, is an example mm-hmm. of something that we're going to see uh, once this becomes much more common. Right. Because there is a there is a uh, sort of a two part or a two step dance that has to happen. I mean, it's one thing that you have the gig network there, and there are people there who can develop in that environment and develop for uh, software distribution and so forth. But you're going to need a lot more cities like Kansas City and uh, Santa Monica and, and Chattanooga because you're going to need an audience. I mean, you're going to need a bigger market than just Seattle for these folks to develop and feel like what they're developing is going to have buyers, basically. Yeah, well, again, that's that's the catch-22, right? Lacking Mm -hmm. bandwidth, you lack applications, so you lack customers. So the private sector uh, doesn't feel that it can make enough revenue to justify the investment of, uh, of greater bandwidth. Nobody's a bad guy here. We're just... 
mm-hmm. stuck in this loop that we have to break out of. And the goal here is to break mm-hmm. out of that loop. Sure. I think even from the beginning, when when Chattanooga became sort of the the point city a year ago, you know, everybody was like, oh, this is great, but then who's going to buy any of this stuff? Everybody was like, started raining their hands about, oh, woe is us because, you know, we have this great, you know, city on the hill, digitally speaking, and, you know, no one's going to buy their stuff. And, and so I think that as more communities get engaged, and I don't think necessarily that the community need to have a gig network per se, uh, you know, sparsely populated areas, you know, probably won't need as much capacity you know, they're, probably, they're definitely going to need, you know, 50 megs, 100 megs, or what have you. And I think these are going to become more prevalent in the next couple of years, probably in large part because of uh, organizations such as Gig.U and, and Gig Square and, and, and the other folks that are driving the process. Oh, by the way, one of the things I noticed in the, um, in, in the write-up about uh, the, this project is that there is going to be wired infrastructure and there's going to be wireless. Uh, first question is, will the wireless be at the seed? Uh, either well, one can uh, their, propose, their proposal is that they intend to do basically three, three different things at the same time. And uh, in order to get demand, um, they will be uh, eventually, uh, you know, as I said, the the main goal is is to deliver fiber to the homes. But in getting there, they will also be looking at um, the point-to-point service, where businesses can then uh, access that and get up to um, a gig up and down. Um, and after that, they've proposed a variety of other services. That um, and you can help me maybe explain the technology part of this in the sense that it's it's better than Wi-Fi. It's it's um, licensed Wi-Fi, and um, so they have uh, several different models and different service levels that they propose to roll out. They do not have their cost model established yet, but um, they do plan to provide different levels of service. Okay. Well, no, that, that's a good thing. I, I bring this up because, in you know, we still have some pockets of the world, our world, the U.S. world, where uh, folks get into the whole wars of wired versus wireless. And I think that uh, if, if anything is a, you know, will we'll sort of um, signal a new dawn in, in 2013 is that we no longer have this sort of the bitter war we have more of a case of what's your situation? Well, maybe you can use wireless. What's your situation? Well, maybe we need to go with, you know, fiber to the premises. Um, and maybe in other cases they need to have a combination of the two. And, you know, we need to – I don't know if you, you have seen this in, in Seattle. I mean, because you – well, what was the interesting thing about Seattle to me was in 2005, like when I first started paying attention to the issue, Seattle was actually uh, quoted a bit. Um, or, or referenced a bit when people would make comparisons between the cost of building a wireless network when cities were all gaga over doing municipal wireless networks versus the wired, right? And so it was a case of, well, you know, we can, if your city uh, maybe would, it would cost, um, you know, maybe $25 million to have wireless all over Seattle, I think was how they were doing the benchmark. I mean, it wasn't scientific by any means, but you know they would talk about it in that context. Well, then if you wanted to go to fiber, it'd be you know twenty five or two hundred fifty million, right? It's like a ten times the cost. And I don't think those costs are really in line anymore. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Ed might have a sense. I'm not sure how well you looked at the or how intensively you looked at the um, the cost between the two options. But it seems like with the cost of 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 wired infrastructure coming down and the speed capacity of wireless coming up that, you know, we're we're almost going to find a, a point in the middle where, you know, really it's going to be other factors than just cost that will then become a – well, cost and speed that will become a decision. It'll become maybe terrain will be the determining factor or speed of deployment will be the determining factor. But it seems like we're – 
we're we're moving away from some of those extremes of six, seven years ago. Right. Fair? I mean, you know, I I think uh, you know, it, broadband does not imply either wired or wireless, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Bro- mm-hmm. Broadband is the, is the bandwidth we need to live and work and play and learn, and uh, uh, and you're going to provision it in the most cost-effective way. That said, everybody wants to be mobile, right? That's another of the changes mm-hmm. over the past decade, which is uh, we used to be uh, we used to be tethered, and now we have the world with us in our pocket, and, and that's an important change. So we want that, but maybe you don't need as great bandwidth. Uh, uh, maybe there are areas where you can get extremely high bandwidth broadband uh, uh, wireless less expensively than you can get uh, wired, uh, you know, uh, just on the university campus here, we have a set of buildings with so much asbestos in them that providing uh, wired connectivity is going to be a problem. So uh, wireless is the way to go. Uh, we got uh, lots of hills and lots of lakes, and they may change the dynamic. So I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you've got to use the uh, the most appropriate technology in each uh, in each setting, and the goal is to provide ubiquitous access to broadband. Mm-hmm. Um, well said. I mean, I, I you know I've, I've felt this for a long time, and I hope that as more of these projects come into play, that um, we almost emphasize the de-emphasizing of the difference, so that people will stop making it a question of this time next year. No one's going to be like, well, you know, it should be a wire. No, no, you're wrong. It should be. It'd be like, no, it should just be broadband and. How much speed do you need? And let's get going, and you know we'll we'll figure out some of these other issues as we go. But um, yes, definitely, definitely a factor. So let's talk about for a minute um, uh, outcomes. I'm going to give like categories, and you guys can tell me what types of uh, benefits you see occurring. Let's start with economic development. So in a year after this project has gone, you know, and, and move things forward. What kinds of economic development benefits do you expect? And we'll start with Brendan and then Ed. Boy, um, you know, I would say a year is a little too soon to try to um, forecast what might be. Um, you know, it's it's kind of the old chicken and the egg. If you build it, they will come scenario. So. Uh, certainly by the end of 2014, if uh, all goes as planned and, and Gigabit Squared raises their capital and is able to uh, start setting up these um, point-to-point connections, I would say, um, you know, there's there's some economic development in terms of the jobs they're creating by, by building a network. But uh, beyond that... Um, once they get things set up, um, you know, I believe that there will be the the benefit is that people who haven't been able to get the service they need get the service they need. So, so let me give an example looking backwards, Aaron, and correct me if I get this wrong, but, okay. but one of Mayor McGinn's priorities over the past few years has been revitalizing a part of Seattle called Pioneer Square. So Pioneer Square is south of downtown but north of the sports stadiums. And it was sort of the, the original downtown area that was rebuilt after the big fire that we had a hundred and some years ago. Okay? And uh, Pioneer Square had been doing okay, but then when the Kingdome was uh, taken down and the new sports stadiums were uh, erected, uh, they were constructed in a way that made it more difficult for uh, for sports fans to access the restaurants and bars and stores in Pioneer Square, right? Mm-hmm. And it just had to do with where the parking lots were located and stuff like that. And from the point of view of the folks running the stadiums, obviously they would rather that when you go to a Seattle Sounders soccer game, you bought their concessions rather than having dinner in a restaurant. You know, So mm-hmm. you can understand why this happened, right? But the result was right. that Pioneer Square started falling into decay. So uh, an example of something that the mayor tried to do, because this is a key part of the city's heritage, and it was really uh, decaying. So revitalize it by getting some tech businesses to locate there. There was not adequate broadband available for those businesses, right? So so the mayor uh, worked with, in this case, uh, Comcast, uh, 
to launch an initiative that deployed far greater broadband capability in the Pioneer Square area. And now you see all kinds of startups and tech companies locating there. Uh, mm-hmm. Most recently, uh, a, uh, a startup from a dozen years ago here, Isilon, was purchased by EMC and relocated to Pioneer Square. And they're growing like crazy. And that's something that they uh, probably wouldn't have done or wouldn't have been able to do without uh, the mayor's work in getting broadband to that neighborhood. So it's really important to Seattle that, uh, that we have this sort of capability available in parts of the city that we're trying to bootstrap up. That's a good that's a good example and 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 I think Ed you're absolutely correct and and what we did in in Pioneer Square was basically to uh we created legislation to and the legislation isn't the important part of it but basically in essence we got permission to lease our excess conduit in that area, and because it is a historic area, it's very expensive to build down there, which keeps a lot of providers um, out. And so by making this available, um, Comcast took us up on it, and an additional 50 businesses had um, better access than they had had before. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we keep poking at it, and, and that was the ability to lease excess conduit. Now we have the ability to lease excess fiber. Um, you know, we try to just keep moving forward in any way that we can. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and before that happened, I was uh, with the mayor at an event when Facebook announced that they were going to open an office in uh, in Seattle. And I distinctly remember uh, Mayor McGinn uh, pulling the folks from Facebook aside and trying to get them to locate in Pioneer Square. And they smiled politely but it was an uh uh-uh. uh uh and that has that has that has changed now all right so mm-hmm. so the mayor created the tools that allowed him to work with people to revitalize that part of town all right and i can definitely see that and there are plenty of stories like that popping up now as newer networks come into place and community networks get off the ground and so forth now at one point one of you mentioned uh medical uh, healthcare related um uh benefits uh let's talk about those for a second what uh, what kinds of changes do you see the network producing in um in the healthcare uh realm it might have been Aaron you want to mention that well i can speak of what uh gigabit squared had um had worked on over in cleveland and uh what they did there is that they took uh fiber connections to um, assisted living homes and looked mm-hmm. at how what kind of applications could be developed so that um, you know instead of an elderly person needing to get a taxi and going to their health care provider, how could they have um, how could they telecommute with their doctor? How could they send their records back and forth? How could they do things without having to leave the building? And that's that's one example that. Um, that Gigabit Squared has actually been involved with in terms of creating some really special applications that, if you have the infrastructure built, allow them allow healthcare providers to provide um, healthcare in a different way and a less expensive way than they have in the past. And I'm sure, and you can speak to um, you know a myriad of things that University of Washington is doing. Well, you, you know, UW has. Uh telemedicine clinics all over a five-state region. We, we are the tertiary care facility and uh, provide medical residents through Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, uh, Alaska, as well as the state of Washington. And, uh, you know, you need those same telemedicine capabilities in King County and in the city of Seattle in, in certain cases, right? We, we have a far-flung uh, regional clinic network and uh, in, in many cases, those have been provisioned by uh, fiber that we ourselves have uh, acquired over a period of many years. But our ability to deploy clinics in other neighborhoods and areas is sometimes limited by the availability of broadband. Uh, additionally, though, there are uh, things, for example, that I alluded to earlier related to the live-at-home capabilities of, uh, of individuals. If you have Uh, an aging parent in some other part of the city or some other city, you'd like to have uh, 
far more continuous, far higher bandwidth, far more ubiquitous in the home uh, interaction with them than uh, than you have today. Uh, you'd, you'd like to know what's going on. You'd like to have uh, perhaps video connections, secure video connections to every room in their house. This is uh, entirely practical modulo the access to the telecommunications. Interesting. Now, and, and by the way, there there are other things that will happen. This is not a broadband example, but but a mm -hmm. uh, a question I often ask is, uh, how come your automobile is so much better instrumented than your body? Right. If you <laughs> have an automobile purchased in the past ten years, you bring it into the the uh, dealership and they uh, jack a computer under the dash or under the hood and read out the last six months of performance data and ideally identify the problem and fix it. And when you go in to see your physician, she basically says, where does it hurt? Right, and, right. Uh, <laughs> and there's, there, you know, this is going to change, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the uh, availability of this sort of uh, personal data is going to change, uh, change our health and change the way we approach maintaining our health. And, uh, again, that data does uh, n no good if it just uh, sits on the device or probably sits in your home PC. It needs to get to your primary care physician. If we can just get past all the HIPAA regulation madness there, we'll, we'll probably be able to work something out there in that regard. Well, you know, a lot of things are going to happen to have to change. Uh, again, this is a computing story and not uh, a bandwidth story, but, uh, you know, we're moving towards a, uh, a, a generation of specialized drugs. Today we produce large quantities of a small number of drugs. And okay. in the future we're going to do this genotype-phenotype correlation and we're going to be producing small quantities of large numbers of drugs that are tailored to individuals. And that's going to cause dramatic changes in the drug approval process, for example. Right? Right. So a bunch of stuff has to change and, and yeah, will change, and the result is going to be better health and, and really yeah. bringing us together in all sorts of ways. Cool. We've got about, um, let's see, we've got about eight minutes left. Let's uh, talk about education for a second. Um, do you have any hints of, of uh, new and exciting education applications that will roll out of this initial process? Well, so, so let me... Uh, again, there are lots of examples we could we could give, but I I think uh, something that's on everybody's minds these days is these things called MOOCs, uh, massive open online courses, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, all of us are doing it. The University of Washington was the first university to actually announce that they're going to grant uh, credit and degrees through uh, entirely uh, online courses. I you know there are a lot of details or TBD, but uh, it, it's it's pretty exciting, and I mm -hmm. think the the, the, you know, we're, we're a public university in the state of Washington, and uh, this fits perfectly with our mission. Our goal is not to be educating people all over the world. Our goal is to be educating citizens of the state of Washington who mm -hmm. need access to more education than they currently have, and there's no physical place to put them, right? So now right. the question is, how do you do that? And, um, you know, there are uh, aspects of this that can be uh, – online without interaction. But for example, the way these MOOCs really work is they're what's called semi-synchronous. People start the course at the same time and assignments are due at the same time. And the result is that groups of students, subsets of these hundreds of thousands of students in a particular course can support one another. Okay, it's peer support. And, uh, and now the question is, what's the best way to provide that peer support? Is it uh, uh, text chat rooms, right? Or uh, mm -hmm. can you utilize higher bandwidth in a way that creates something that's m much more like the uh, the sort of tutoring that we're used to and that we know to be effective? So, you know, you can imagine that, of course, lots of education can be done at modest bandwidth, but you can also imagine that you can make it far better by uh, creating distributed groups of people who are actively collaborating with one another as if they were in the same place. Mm -hmm. so I just think the opportunities are incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, this might be our last question. We'll see. Um, Aaron, uh, yesterday our show talked about uh, using broadband to improve government operations. Uh, is there a component of that in this uh, initial project? In other words, are you testing or will you be testing ways in which to make the delivery of government services 
better, faster, more efficient, what have you? Well, you know, uh, it's a great question, and and I think that right now our focus has been um, attracting private sector to the city and trying mm-hmm. to get this off the ground. So to be honest with you, um, we haven't had those discussions yet, but certainly as we try to move forward with um, our data.seattle.gov and ways for people to use our data and our mobile applications, we certainly will be having conversations to to look at what we can what we can do and what makes sense for us. But to be honest with you, um this was a pretty big step to get over here over the no, last I couple months. That. So we're not that, quite right? there yet. Right. I think what you will find is that in the um uh in the first days of the year you're going to probably need a, a special czar just to handle ideas because one of the things I've found, you know, that once these networks get going and all of a sudden someone says, well, if they can do that, well, we can do this, this, and this. And then it has like, this major exponential, like, increase. And, in fact, in uh, Oklahoma City and in uh, Chattanooga, you know, they had to stop at one point and, and create a process for managing ideas because the, the idea flow was just getting totally off the chain. And, uh-huh. uh, and so they, they, they said, okay, well, we need a process. We need a process to evaluate, prioritize, you know, and assign because otherwise we will always either be chasing our, our tails or we will have people, you know, in the community that will be frustrated because they're bringing in new ideas and so forth. And it just and it surprises people. I mean, I, I found this to be the case in the private sector which is where I did most work before this hall, this community broadband stuff, was that um, when you introduce a new technology, there is usually one or two focuses that people have. And then the second that it starts to, like, uh, you know, proliferate within the organization or, in your case, within the community, then the ideas just start to pop. And then as people, you know, start talking to each other, they then start to multiply, and, and organizations have had the, you know, embarrassment of riches or being trapped under the weight of, of the flood of ideas because they weren't really ready for all of that coming in the door. So mm-hmm. I warn you now that, uh, okay. you know, you will, you will you get a plethora of, of ideas. I mean, you know, for you could Kansas City, I mean, it was just, it's, it's just all they can do to just keep up with that just that one aspect of it. So um, I think this is going to be good. I, I uh, you know, we're going to kind of wind down. Um, so, Craig, this is a really important about- point, and I just, you know, want to e- emphasize the fact that uh, that you need the capability in order to inspire people to have the ideas, right? And uh, part of what the capability does is to democratize the uh, the number of people who are capable of having these uh, inspirations. You know, universities play an important role. Young people are, are uh, inherently inventive. Facebook is out of a university. Google's out of a university. These things we use all the time. And, uh, and that speaks to the role of universities, but it also speaks to the importance of uh, enabling innovative, creative people everywhere to contribute. And ubiquitous broadband not only turns everyone into a consumer of ideas and services, but it turns everyone into a potential producer and innovative, an innovator mm-hmm. for ideas and services. And uh, so th- the goal here is to create an ecosystem in which all sorts of people are coming up with ideas. And as always, 90% of them are going to be losers. But if a few percent of them are the next Facebook and the next Google, then uh, we've really done something special. One other thing I wanted to mention is we've, we've, talked a lot about the role that Mayor McGinn has played, and it's been really important. I just want to uh, say hats off to Aaron and Stan Wu and uh, their predecessor, Bill Schreier, in the city's broadband office. Uh, Blair Levin, we've talked about, uh, you know, after doing the broadband plan at the FCC, he established this gig.u initiative specifically to run around the country like a Pied Piper and try and bring universities and their cities and telecommunications providers together. And finally, at, at uh, the University of Washington, Mike Young, the president, and Kelly Trosvig, who uh, runs our information technology 
organization have uh, just been uh, great partners and have worked incredibly hard to help bring this about. Great. And with that, we're going to have to wrap. Uh, thank you, our guests, Ed and Aaron, and also thank our audience for being here. We'll next. Have a great day. Good to talk to you. Thank you.